Good morning, one and all. Thank you, Bill. Uh, just for those of you who are not regulars around here, we are in this series in the book of James called Living Faith, where we're basically building all that's happened uh, within us coming together to center on God in our time of worship, which is basically that we believe as followers of Jesus that our faith, our trust is built in and on a living God. And as such, as our faith and trust is built on a living God, actually, it then shapes what our lives look like. And what we're discovering week on week is that um, the book of James, written by uh, the brother of Jesus, uh, a letter to the churches in his day and age, is actually an explanation of what it looks like and a challenge and inspiration of what it looks like to ensure that we have lives that are shaped by our faith in a living God, who's Father, Son, and Spirit, who's revealed through Jesus who is the Son. And so that's what we're doing week on, week out. And before we kind of look at the next bit, I wanted to just make mention of a few things that are going on uh, in the life of Oasis in terms of news. I thought it'd be helpful to know. The first thing is that um, there's a number of people who are uh, away this weekend. Uh, We're not a a student church. We always say we're a a church that loves students. And we have a number of students that we have the privilege of being around us, uh, both from Birmingham University and Birmingham City University. And they both have their kind of house parties away, which is basically a kind of inner lingo of as believers of Jesus gathering and going away from university to kind of connect, uh, to realize why they can connect and the purpose and change they could make on their campuses. And so they're both away at different venues. And I think it'd be great just for us to be praying for them in what they're doing uh, today. They've been there since Friday and praying that would be a really effective time for, for both groups. The other individual that actually is away today is Gus, um, who's actually away speaking at another church in Birmingham uh, at their baptism service. It's a church in uh, an area called Hollywood, which always makes me laugh. I think there's two areas of Birmingham that make me laugh. One is Hollywood, and the other one is Springfield. Uh, both disappointed me when I went there. Um, but um, they're both just, it's just great, really, that Gus is able to go there. It's a church we've been able to get into connection with, and a way of us saying, actually, as a church, we're here for Birmingham, and therefore want to do what we can to encourage and build up others that are seeking to reach and reveal this amazing message of what it looks like to have Jesus at the center of your life. And so that's where Gus is uh, this morning. And so if you kind of nod off a bit whilst I'm speaking, why don't you use those moments to pray for Gus and say, Gus, would you be there? Or then if you run out of prayers for Gus, why not use those moments to pray then for all the guys who are away on their CU house parties? But hopefully there won't be many moments where you nod off, as I want us now to look at the next bit of James. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to it, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. The verses will appear on the screen behind me. This is what James writes. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice." But the wisdom that comes from heaven, that's from God, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. 
Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James is writing here to believers. He's not writing to people who aren't, people who said that Jesus is at the center of their lives. He's writing to a bunch of people who said, yeah, Jesus is at the center of my life. He's then wanting to write to kind of talk about how they're acting towards each other as believers, how they're kind of acting within the churches. And he kind of says, actually, there's a way that you can live and how you live can either be wise or unwise. And I want us to consider that this morning of how we live. And if you like, what I want us to do is to see how we live. And what I believe James is trying to paint a picture here is for us to understand that how we live, both in respect to how we live together in living out our faith with Jesus at the center, both as a gathered church, but also how we live our lives within the worlds we're in. That how we live leaves a taste. And it's this question I want us to ponder. What taste do our lives leave for others? What taste do our lives leave for others? And within this passage, I believe that James is trying to paint a picture of the kind of taste that we could bring. And I want us to hopefully see by the end that there's a taste that I want us to therefore live seeking together to offer, as well as receive ourselves. But together, we've got to do a bit of a journey. And the journey starts here with a cup. See, James writes this in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. You see, we can say what we want, but ultimately, people are left with the taste of who we are by how we live our lives. And if you were around a couple of weeks ago, we realized that actually, if we were to summarize our lives, our lives are a bit like a cup. A cup that actually, it can look as pretty as we want to on the outside, but ultimately, we understand that by ourselves, we're just left empty. That however good we seek to be, we always fall short of what perfection is. And if God is perfection, if God is truly good in every sense, that there's, there's no wrong in him, that actually all of us recognize that actually compared to him, we fall short. But also we recognize that we are left empty because we realize that actually whatever we seek to satisfy us, we're always left thirsting for something more. And it might be possessions, it might be wealth, it might be a kind of popularity. It might be comfort. And whatever we're seeking, we always find however much we've got of it, it never quite satisfies. And a couple of weeks ago, we realized that actually we're just all left understanding we're like a cup, but a cup that's empty. And left in that need to understand that we're desperate for it to be filled. And the only one who can fully satisfy, the only one who can deal with us falling short is God himself, who through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, in his mercy, fills us. In order that we'd know that we don't fall short, in order that we'd know that we're now those that are loved and accepted unconditionally by a God who loves perfectly, but also that those that are now satisfied and have every thirst quench that we could ever have. And so we recognize that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've got to that point in our lives and saying, actually, I know I'm empty. If it's down to me, I'm just left empty. But now I've seen who Jesus is. Now I've put my faith and trust in him. Now as what Gus spoke about last week, now I've stood on the chair 
the chair that is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection said, my whole life is now founded on him. Actually, I now know that I'm full. I was one in need of mercy, and God has come through and given me mercy. And now we're those that are now filled with mercy. It's how we live out from this point. And if you like, I want to build on a bit of what Gus spoke of last week. If you remember, he did that illustration of standing on the chair, and the chair resembled uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and saying this is where we build our whole lives. And it's from this point that as we step out, we continue to trust God just as we have done with our salvation, of us being made right before God. We continue to trust God in everything with that same level of trust. But we also seek to live out of that place of now knowing that my security and identity is now in the fact that I'm one who's founded on Jesus. In his life, death, and resurrection, it makes the whole of my life make sense. And if I move out from this point, knowing my security is in the fact that I'm loved unconditionally, accepted unconditionally. So I move out in every area of my life from that place. And if you're like, in this passage, James is kind of drilling it down and saying, right, you've got a full cup. You're full of mercy. But how do you taste When people see your lives, when people hear your words, how do you taste? See, at this point, we can look at the passage and think, oh, yeah, but James is surely talking about people who haven't yet received that mercy, who haven't said they've put and based their life on Jesus. He's kind of comparing two lives. He's saying, there's a wise way of living, of basing your life on Jesus. And if you don't base your life on Jesus, then it's not going to be that wise, and it's going to look like this. But James, as always, is a bit provocative. We're kind of learning that week on week. He's someone who doesn't pull his punches. He's someone who is kind of nice to have around, but you just need him a little bit. He's the kind of individual that if you're going to invite around for a meal, you'd probably have him once every six months, because any more than that, you'd kind of be reeling from it. Everything he said was right, but I just need some time to deal with it. And James is a bit like that. Now, at the moment, we're kind of getting him every week. But fortunately, having six days between it to actually deal with what he's just said and said, okay, how does this shape my life now? But in it, James is speaking, you see, to us as those who've centered our lives in Jesus, those who've received mercy, those whose lives have been full of his mercy, and then saying, how do you taste that? Do we taste like vinegar? It's like a nice vinegar balsamic vinegar. It's kind of like one of those ones that's there to show, you know, I don't just put vinegar on my chips. I put, like, balsamic vinegar on my chips. I'm like the M&S of the chip world. That's what it is, but at the end of the day, it might taste a little bit sweet, but after a while, it leaves a bit of a bitter taste. This is what James says. Verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. See, James is talking to a bunch of people who said, you know who I am? I'm someone who's centered my life on Jesus. I'm someone who's fooled, full of his mercy. I'm someone who's realized that I was empty. And I need everything from him. He says, yeah, but you've still got to watch how you live. Because are you someone who lives actually when people taste what you say you're full of? It tastes ultimately of vinegar because you're full of bitter envy or selfish ambition. Man, James, 
like hits it hard, doesn't he? Let's, let's be a bit more gracious, shall we? Maybe it's not that we're full of it. Maybe it's sometimes we might taste a bit of it. Maybe it's sometimes I'm full of, maybe it's sometimes we're full of bitter envy. Maybe it's sometimes we're full of selfish ambition. What does he mean by bitter envy? See, those are quite harsh words, aren't they? You know, if I was to come around your house and say, what I thought I'd talk to you about today, and it's great that you've put on a nice meal, but I thought we'd just talk about how I just wondered whether you realized that you're kind of full of bitter envy. You'd be like, you what? But you see, what James is wanting to do, and why he uses words that kind of cut us a bit, and we think, oh, I don't really like that one. Can't he dress it up a bit nicer? Is actually, it just allows us to say, well, okay, what do you mean here? It makes me feel uncomfortable. Why? See, when he talks about bitter envy, he's basically talking about where we get to those points in life. And it might either be because of how our life shapes. And we, we just get to this point and we just think, man, you just don't understand. When I look at my life and the track it's always taken, I just know that everyone's life is always going to be better than mine. Man, look, I can show you the photo album of event after event after event that proves the fact and the thing is that what it does is it brings me to this point where I just get to this point of just saying, Do you know what? I'm just cynical about life. Actually, whenever anyone else does something, I, I want to critique it a little bit. I want to actually criticize it a bit because actually it's just flavored with the sense of, actually, of course their lives can be better than mine. Or maybe it's not just that sense of, kind of how my life is stacked up, it's more from that place of my own security. Where I look at others and I think, man, when I look at their life compared to mine, I'm just a bit envious. And after a while, it isn't just that we think, oh, it's all right, of course it's going to go well for them. We find it starts to kind of root in. That's what bitterness does, it just roots in. It starts to define who we are and we find that we become someone about some people where all we can ever do is talk them down. Then when we hear stuff hasn't gone so well for them, we can't help but share it to others. We become someone where it might not be to do with individuals, it might be just to do with life. And so we can't help but just be a bit critical. And so whenever someone is parading some kind of news that seems a little bit good, we can't help ourselves but trample over it and say, "Ah, oh, but you may think that you've done great, but don't you know there are tens of thousands of people at the moment homeless in the Philippines? What are you doing about that? I was just caring for my friends. Yeah, but. And we can't help. And it may be right things we're noticing, but... But actually, the, the way we're doing it, it just seems to cause others pain. James says, are we those that are sometimes causing others to taste bitter envy? He then says, or is it selfish ambition? Is it that sense of actually what I'm about is me? But I just want people to draw attention to me to understand what I've done, to, to kind of pat me on the back in terms of my achievements. Maybe it's not just in respect to what I do. Maybe it's just in respect to who I am. Maybe we're someone that when we talk to people, we can't help but turn it in on ourselves. I know I've been sometimes guilty 
of where someone starts a conversation and they say, you know, they're talking about their life and I start to ask them a few questions about how their life is and they start to express something about their life and say, oh yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. And I'm wanting at start to kind of empathize. I'm trying to say, I know a little bit of how you feel. But then there's some part of me thinks, I wonder if you truly understand how I feel. In actual fact, I wonder if we shouldn't think about how you're doing at the moment. I wonder if we should more think about how I am. And before we know it, I've turned the conversation to me. Because what I want you to know about is all about me. And what's going on in my world. And, and actually, you can talk about yours, but to be honest, it's not that as important as my world. See, for some of us, we think, man, I know I do that. And I'm not trying to point fingers here. James isn't trying to point fingers here. He's just saying, do you know what? As we live who we are as church together, as we live who we are centered on Jesus in the worlds around us, what is it people taste? It says, if they taste bitter envy, if they taste selfish ambition, it will cause them to have a bad taste. This is what he says, verse 16, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you, will f- you find disorder in every evil practice. See, the deal with balsamic vinegar is that, to be honest, a little bit on my thumb is all right. If I was to pour it in here, I'm not going to, because I'm just going to be sick if I do that, and it won't help us for the morning. Um, and let's just say, I don't know, I, I just put five mil in and I drink it, I promise you, by the end, I'll start to retch. Not that I've tried that. Um, If you want to go home and try it, you can do. I'm not encouraging that because I think it will cause you to have the same reaction. But it just doesn't taste good. It it leaves kind of this bad taste in your mouth, and and your left and your tongue feels like it's it's kind of uh, wanting something else, and the top of your roof of the mouth is is starting to be just evaporating, and it's just disappearing, and you're kind of... Um, the uncomfortable truth is this when we live with envy and selfish ambition when we allow it to just seep out a little bit ultimately the taste that we leave in other people's mouth is that it feels like the roof of their mouth is starting to drop out they're just left with this bitter taste and the problem is this is that it causes disorder it causes moments where people think I I didn't think it was meant to be like that. I'm confused. I thought church was meant to be somewhere where I felt safe. And rather, it suddenly feels because of how Asian's just interacted with me, of of how he's kind of expressing stuff. I'm suddenly left thinking, "This, this doesn't feel that safe anymore. I'm confused. Let's take it outside of the church saying, let's take it just in how we live our life, in the worlds we're in. I don't know if that's around your home, around your street, in your workplace, on your campus, in your school. That we live and we start to be one who talks about self, looking to promote ourselves. We be one who, who's kind of filled with that bitter envy, can't help but crit- be critical, can't help but be cynical. And people look at us and say, man, I thought you were someone who said they were centered on Jesus and was full of mercy. 
I'm confused. I'm confused about who you are then. I'm confused about what it really means to be uh, someone who's living out a faith like you're living. I'm confused by that. In actual fact, I'm not just confused. It just doesn't taste good. Then James kind of takes it on a bit of a step and says, you know, it isn't just that it's going to lead to, lead to confusion. It also will lead to evil practice. Not just like evil practice, like every evil practice. You just think, man, the guy, you must have been like hiding under your chair, not wanting him to look at you when James was speaking. You're like, he's standing there saying, you know, if you're filled with envy and selfish ambition, then you'll find disorder. And every evil practice. You're like, what? But what's he talking about here? He's meaning that actually if we start to give ourselves, thinking that actually we're those that are centered on Jesus, and yet we're allowing ourselves to be those that are selfish ambition, full of envy, that actually what it's going to do is it's not only going to cause confusion, it's not only going to cause people to think, well, what does it really mean to be centered on Jesus? Ultimately, it's going to say, actually, I don't know what it means to have a God-shaped life. In actual fact, it's going to encourage a way of living that is completely opposite to what God wants for our best. And so rather than the church being a place that people could look in and say, oh, that's what it looks like to have a life shaped by God who's good and seeks goodness for everyone, it causes people to look in and think, it doesn't look that different. It kind of just actually looks a bit worse. Because it's hidden behind some sort of thing of saying this is all God. That actually, if we're not there in the world saying, actually, there's a different way to live. There's a light that's on that's saying, hey, look at this. Actually causes people to think, all right, there is no light. Let's just all hang out in the darkness still. Let's not worry about what God says because actually it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any difference to your life. Actually, let's just live this way. And James says, man, it's dangerous to live with a bitter taste left. So then he says, maybe there's a different way to live then. At this point, you think, oh yeah, I can see why you start to talk about wisdom. Because maybe that isn't wise. Maybe there's a different way then. And that's the way of the cocktail. Cocktails are just a lot more fun than vinegar, surely. You see, James says this, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, that's from God, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now the thing is with this list, and we're going to unpack it in a moment, but in the first reading... In the kind of climate we live in, in the society we live in, if we said, oh yeah, I'm someone who's pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, I'm full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and I'm sincere. To be honest, the kind of cocktail they think that we're whizzing up is one one of those flavored waters. Do you know those flavored waters I'm talking about where it says it's a water with a hint of elderberry? And you kind of buy it and you pay £2.50 for it and you think, man, this better be good. You pour it out and you think... It feels like, or it tastes like, it's water with something. And I I don't really know what that thing is, but it feels like it's water with a faint taste of nothingness. Apart from the nothingness that I've just been conned out of £2.50 for a bottle that looked jazzy but promised nothing. Or maybe it's a bit like a fruit tea. You know what I'm talking about. You weren't there on the hint of water, the hint flavored water. You're all a bit, oh, I've known some hint flavored waters, but it tasted very good. The, the fruit tea, you know what I'm talking about. You pay for it, you buy it, you put it in the cup. It promises you something. It changes color. The water physically changes color. 
Amazing. Different colours depending on the fruit that's promised. And then you drink it and you think at best it tastes like warmed up dirt. (laughs) At worst, it's kind of this faint aftertaste on the roof of your mouth that's just water with paper. And you think, no, is that what's being talked about here? Because that seems a bit of a weak list. And yet what James is promising actually is something far from weak, something that is fully fruitful, something that is fruit-packed, that actually when you drink it, you can't help thinking that tastes good. See, first of all, he says it's pure. In other words, it's... I'm going to run out of room, I've just realized that. It's, It's pure. In other words, that it's a life that's being offered, a life that's being revealed that's free from guilt and shame and able to be lived visibly right before God, living for God and his best for us. It says it's to be one that's peace-loving. Pineapple juice. That it's one that's to be peace-loving, that is one that is all about loving the fact that God is into restoring everything. Man, when things like the, Philipp- the Philippians, I was about to say Philippians, it isn't, it's the Philippians happens, that you get to those points, you think, there's two questions people have. They go, actually, where's God? And why do you let this happen? The first question is a brilliant question. The second question is an okay question. See, we need to always ask, where's God? Because actually, as believers, we understand that when things like this happen, it reminds us that what we live in, however nicely it's dressed up, however nice the cup looks, the world that we live in isn't as it's meant to be. It's broken. And the story we live with is a story that started at the very beginning of the Bible in a book called Genesis, where it, which means the beginnings, where we find that there's this place where God creates the earth. And in it, he places humanity and says, would you take care of it? Live within the parameters that I've given you in perfect relationship with me in order that this will work. And then we find that humanity says, all right, okay, we'll do that. But one of the parameters you've given us of us not knowing what's truly good and what's truly evil and the fact that only you can know that, actually, we we don't think that's quite right. We think we could be like you. And so we're going to eat from that tree. We're going to say we're going to know what's truly good and what's truly evil. And then we'll be like you. And then we can truly relate. And as a result of that moment, and every moment from that point where humanity decided to say, I decided to say, you decided to say, I'm going to live with me at the center rather than God. My best, not his best. Is it broke everything. We haven't got time to look at it today. Just read Genesis 3 and it breaks everything. It breaks how mankind, humanity can relate to God. It broke how humanity could relate to each other. It broke how humanity could relate within itself. It broke in how humanity could relate to the whole of creation, which in a small way allows me to answer in the Philippines. Philippines. I'm struggling. Struggling. The country we know is facing devastation at this moment. It reminds us as followers of Jesus, the world isn't how it's meant to be. It's broken. But one came in to restore everything, Jesus. Through his life, death, and resurrection, in order that he'd restore everything, restore our relationship with God, restore our relationship within ourselves, restore our relationship with others, and restore the whole of creation. 
The plan isn't that one day we vanish and go to some mystical place, Narnia through the wardrobe. The plan is that God hasn't given up on this planet and he's going to restore it to his beauty and something that is way more glorified and beautiful and majestic than it's ever been before. Therefore, we are a people of hope. And in moments like this where we see things like that happen in a nation and we say, actually, it's not meant to be like this. God is about restoring everything. And when we come to peace-loving, it means that. It's one who's saying, actually, I'm here to bring peace, to bring wholeness, to restore everything. Starting to get quite a good kind of cocktail. Considerate. In other words, those that are gentle. Recognize that as humanity, we're fragile, and we need to be treated with a sticker that says, handle with care. We're to be those that are submissive. That's part of the cocktail, submissive. That we're those that are seeking to be obedient. I'm saying it's not about my rights. I've laid my rights down. It's that we're those that are full of mercy, that recognize that actually we've got this moment where we realize the cup was empty. And it's only through God that he came and he filled us with his mercy, his unconditional love, forgiveness, acceptance. It's good fruit in respect to the fact that everything we seek to do is for the good and benefit of others. That we're those that are impartial, that we don't seek to live thinking of others differently. We start to see everyone as equal because everyone is empty without him. Everyone needs him. Therefore, we're all on a level playing field. We are truly a people who say everyone is equal. And then lastly, we're those that are sincere. We're not double-minded. We do what we say. Thing is, I can pile it all on. And it looks pretty stacked. And we could go and say, okay, I better go and do that stuff. But the challenge is that it isn't ever that we better go and do it. It's always that we've got it. Therefore, we just get to cause others to taste it. See, the reality is this. What Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, in us putting our trust and faith in him, is he caused us, each as individuals, to understand that through his life, death, and resurrection, and us putting our faith and trust in him, he has made us pure. He's caused us to know that we are now free from guilt and shame. He's caused us to know because of him, we now can know that we're right with God and we can live as God desires us to live. He's caused us to be those that can know that we can be peace-loving. Why? Because he's one who's come and brought us peace. He's one, as I've said, through his life, death, and resurrection, has allowed us to know that we're now restored in relationship with God, with each other, within ourselves, and with the whole of creation. He's one who's come as one who displays gentleness to us, who's considerate, who recognizes that each and every one of us has a handle with care sticker on us and seeks to deal with us as an individual and say, actually, I'm going to cause you to know me and I'm going to meet you where you are at. He then comes and says, actually, he's one who's truly submissive, who's willing to lay down his rights in order that he can give us us. He's one who says that actually he took up the cross, laying, choosing to lay down his life, saying to the Father, not my will, but yours. Obedient. That through him being willing to lay down his rights, 
we get to receive everything. So we, won, we get a cocktail of understanding that Jesus has laid down his rights for us. Get one who treats us all equally, who's impartial, who says that he loves every single person exactly the same. God has no favorites. Everyone is. We get one who says that he's sincere, that what he says, what he does, he will do. There is no double-mindedness in Jesus. He came with one set purpose in mind when he came to earth, and that was to rescue everyone, to bring peace for everyone, to bring hope for everyone. He's one who came and has offered us his goodness in order that we would have the benefit of it. That he'd come and say, actually, I've not just come to allow you to see who I am. I've allowed you to taste who I am, that I'm truly good. And I've come for your benefit to remove your guilt and shame and replace it with my unconditional love and acceptance. One, therefore, who came and was full of mercy, didn't ask anything of us, just came and gave everything for us so we could gain it. That's a pretty full cocktail. And here's the deal. Jesus offers it to us and we get to receive it. And I tell you what, tastes pretty good. When it's stacked up, vinegar, cocktail. There's no question, is there? The wise way to live is to taste the cocktail. See, for us to cause others to taste it, we need to be those who are continually tasting it. We need to be those who are continuously coming day by day and just saying, Jesus, I want to taste again of the cocktail of your life towards me. I want to come and take in. I'd, I'd encourage us over the coming weeks to just take those, that verse and just say, oh yeah, this is what it means of what Jesus has given me, of his peace, of his purity, of his goodness, of his mercy, of his sincerity, of his submission. This is what it looks like for me and I get to taste of this. And I say that we keep tasting it. Because as we taste it, it will cause us to drink more and more of it in, in order that we can then have lives that are shaped by it, in order that we can then offer it to other people. So that we can be a church that isn't known as vinegar, that we can be a church that offers cocktails. That we get to be a church that seeks to be this. Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers, in other words, those that are all understanding that Jesus came to restore everything. And therefore, we live lives that point to that big picture. That we're here now as those who've tasted of his restoration. And we're here then to offer it to everyone. And so we give our lives, not after our identity of kind of envy or um, our selfish ambition, but rather just saying, actually, my life is one that's founded on Jesus, and therefore I want everyone to know what that looks like. I want everyone to know that actually I'm one now who's about restoring everything because that's what he's able to do. And so it impacts how we build church. It causes us that we arrive thinking, I want to be one that tastes like a cocktail to others. 
How? It means that we are people who forgive one another quickly. It means that we're people who, who don't hold grudges. We let go. Forgiveness literally means that we forget. That we say, okay, I let you off here and I'm never going to remind you of it. So we become a community that's about forgiveness. We become a community that's not about kind of my agenda. It's actually about ensuring that actually my agenda always takes second place to actually the care of everyone else. We become a community that says actually what we're about is ensuring that we continuously are pointing one another to tasting everything that Jesus has given us. But it's also that we get to be a community that live this way outside in the worlds that we're part of. Of ensuring that we're those that actually cause people to see in our lives a cocktail that's to be tasted. I tell you what, the biggest way that we can probably do that is the way we treat other people. I had the privilege a Saturday ago of spending four hours on a car park duty at a fireworks display at one of my kids' schools. All I had to do is stand at the car park for four hours, didn't see many fireworks, just for four hours, and literally just smile and say to people, you can park in there. I hope you have a great night. And then when they left, I said, I hope you've had a great night. I hope you have a good journey home. That's all I did. It's not rocket science. And I treated every single person exactly the same. This young guy, teenager who's with me, comes up to me at the end and he says this. He says, what is it you do? What is it you're about? Because you just treat people differently and I don't understand why. So I then say, ah, oh, it's funny you should say that. What I'm about is Jesus. And what he's done is he shapes my life. So what I do is I'm involved in this church. And what we seek to do is show people that actually they value to God. And he went, that sounds pretty good. He didn't at that point fall on his knees saying, how can I come to your church? He just went, that's interesting. And all I did is smiled and waved. <laughs> and did it exactly the same to everyone. Tasting the cocktail and causing people to taste it doesn't have to be complicated. The question is, are we allowing people to taste that? Because the big picture is this. As we do, the promise is we will reap a harvest of righteousness. In other words, we'll cause people to find who God is and how they can be right with him. That's amazing. Man, I just thought it was going to do me good. I thought it was going to do us good. I thought maybe I'd get to offer people and they could taste it. Well, that tastes good. But actually, no, the promise is as we give ourselves to living this way, it will cause people to become right with God. I don't know about you, but that, that feels like a pretty cool incentive. It feels like a pretty good outcome. But it gets better than this. You see, James, because he hung around with his brother Jesus and started to make some sense of what Jesus had said, though at the time he didn't really understand it, he suddenly remembers something else. And he builds this point of saying Jesus says, which allows us to see even more of a privilege of why we get to be those that are peacemakers. Because Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And as we go around offering the cocktail... People get to see, oh, you're God's family. 
You're not just any old bunch of people. You're not just some good, two-gooders. You're not some, some sort of kind of nice group of people. Actually, I get to see you're different. You've got a family trait. You're God's. So how are we going to respond then? For some of us, I guess it's that we need to explore more. At the moment, you're kind of rumbling around saying, well, I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out, and I recognize that maybe there's more to my life than this, and maybe there is a God, but now you've just talked about a load of fruit juices into a cocktail, into a plastic bug. Where does my life fit? Well, for you, I'd say maybe it's to explore and say, maybe to explore and say, are some of the claims I'm making about Jesus true for you? Could your life be enriched by him? Because if it could, it's well worth investigating. And to do that, I'd encourage you, come along to Alpha. We meet at the moment every Wednesday night. It's not too late. Please do come along. Come and talk to me at the end as I'd love to continue a conversation of how we can talk and aid you in the journey of you discovering, is what I've said true for you? For others of us, it's that we receive this and we repent. Now, normally I just say, let's just receive it. Now, for some of us, we know that actually we've been living with criticism and cynicism in our life. And we know that actually we're more vinegar than we are a cocktail. And today, the nicest thing I can say to you is change. That's what repentance means. It means that we turn from going one direction to go to another. And for you, I want to encourage you to say, please don't leave this morning saying, all right, I better just watch the vinegar I spill out. No, let's not have a life of vinegar. Let's have a life full of a cocktail. And so for you, I want to appeal and say, please come to God and say, I'm sorry. Would you help me change? And then receive afresh everything Jesus has for you. Because as you receive it, you'll then taste it afresh and cause others to taste it. And then lastly, can I encourage us to be a church that builds who we are together and who we are individually as we work out in the worlds that we're placed, those that offer this amazing cocktail that promises restoration for everything. Should we stand? Let's just close our eyes, just a way of not getting distracted by others. God, we do just still ourselves before you and just say, we want to be honest before you. And God, you know exactly what's going on in our hearts and you know that you never come and we never come as a community to judge one another or to point out the speck in each other's eyes. We're, we're not here to do that. And rather than noticing the plank in our own, we, we, God, we come and we just stand before you and we just ask God, would you, in your grace and mercy, meet with us? I pray for those of us who know that we've just allowed vinegar to become a satisfying taste. I pray for those of us who've done that. I pray would you come and cause us to know that we're not meant to be this way. That you came, that we'd be able to drink the richness of the cocktail that you're able to offer. And I pray for those of us, I pray that we'd know freedom from old ways of living in order that we'd be able to live in the fruit of what you have for us. And Jesus, I pray for all of us. I pray that for those of us who are trying to work out who you are, God, I pray would you keep revealing yourself. I pray for those of us who said, no, our life is now founded on you. I pray, Jesus, would you cause us to see the privilege 
of what it is we get to offer through you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that it would shape increasingly who we are as a church, how we build life together as a church. I pray it would shape more and more how we are as church in the worlds that you've placed us in order that we would reap an amazing harvest of seeing many, many people who come around us and aren't confused, aren't leaving thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to continue to kind of grow in kind of things that are not for God, but rather come to a point of saying, actually, I want to taste what you've tasted and know that I'm right with God. We ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to end there. Just to say there's tea and coffee served in the back over there. There's uh, obviously kids.